welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and it is a pleasure to be back. So glad to be back in action and to be bringing you another wonderful podcast. And all of you out there are really going to enjoy today's interview. I had the great pleasure of speaking with actor and acting coach Ed Hooks. Now, all of you animators, animation students, animation fans out there, you know who Ed Hooks is. You read his book, Acting for Animators. He is a fantastic person. And he has a new book out called Craft Notes for Animators, a perspective on a 21st century career. Ed and I talked about a wide range of topics in this two-part episode. So without further ado, I present episode 40, Interview with Ed Hooks, part one. My guest today is Ed Hooks, and for anyone in the field of animation wanting to get into animation, a fan of animation, you have heard of Ed. You most likely have heard of him through his wonderful book, Acting for Animators, which is now in its third edition. He has taught acting at numerous organizations, including Disney, DreamWorks, and Ubisoft. He's traveled all over the world for his animation masterclass. And he is an acting veteran, having acted in over 100 productions for both stage and screen. Ed, it is truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the program today. (laughs) I tell you, the pleasure is mine. And thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So as I tell all my guests that come on the show, I always like to start with people's origin stories. So where are you from, Ed? I was born in uh, Georgia. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, my family moved around the South and migrated finally up to Washington, D.C. And from there, I went to New York. And that's where I went into acting at uh, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And uh, and then uh, I worked in New York for, uh, oh, I don't know, eight years and did a lot of stage plays and commercials during that time. And then in 1976, I went to... Hollywood, and started working on mainly television shows. I did a lot of television shows then. And along the way, I began to teach acting at some point and started writing a couple of books for actors. And uh, so that's, uh, that's what it is. But I was born in Georgia, had to take lessons to get rid of my accent, you know. Oh, at, wow. Uh, Oh, sure. I would, <laughs> I would go to an audition and they would uh, open my mouth and they would say, where are you from? <laughs> oh, no. You're like, no, no, I, I swear, this is it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to spend a lot of time with a coach saying, I wend my way through the windy woods and this sort of stuff to get rid of my accent. <laughs> but since you originally had an accent or, you know, since you're originally from Georgia, do you find that can you turn that on and off now? I imagine with all your different roles that you've played. Well, if I'm around somebody from the South, I pick it up right away. It just uh, you start doing it. I'm not right now, number one, I'm not acting very much. So, you know, I'm mainly just doing teaching. And uh, so I don't, I don't have to worry about it. But when uh, the main thing with the accent, though, is if you're around somebody from the South, you, you right away start picking up that rhythm. And uh, it's really a rhythm. It's really an attitude. That Southern accent is what it is. And it's hard if you're from the South, it's hard not to do it if you're around people that are doing it. <laughs> mm. 
You've mastered the ways, though. And tell me this also. <laughs> when did you realize that acting was what you wanted to do? Oh, my. What a great question. You know what? When I was 13 years old, I did a play in school, and the audience laughed and applauded, and it was like a shock to me, uh, that kind of interaction with that audience. And I knew then, when I was 13, that I wanted to act. And I started, I got into the drama club, you know, and did all the things that you, that you do, every kind of play I could get into. And then when I was 16, I went off and I was able to do a, uh, an apprenticeship in a professional acting company at uh, Corning Summer Theater out in uh, Corning, New York. And then I went back. By then, we moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, I, got a, uh, I was hired to work as an assistant uh, house manager at uh, Arena Stage in uh, Washington, where I was able to see every night just the best actors in the world. I was able to watch them. And it was just wonderful for me. I've, I've just, I knew I wanted to act from when I was quite young. I felt visible. I felt psychologically visible, if you will, when I was acting. That is excellent. That's very interesting. And I've heard people say similar things too, especially, you know, friends that are introverted or shy. They feel like once they're on the stage, it goes away. Yeah. Know, they're able to become this person. Well, you know what it is? You know, when I was a kid, my family moved around quite a lot. So I was all the time in different schools and not really in one place long enough to make very many friends. It was not a very secure kind of a childhood. And when I walked out on stage that time and the audience as one seemed to respond and to seem to understand me, there was that sense of being understood, of being visible in a certain way, in a certain very primal kind of a way. And I had been longing for that. It was a kind of connection. And as soon as you feel that, you know. I mean, you know, this is what I, I have a lot of people ask me if they, if they have what it takes to be an actor. You know, they want to know they want to go into acting. And I tell them, you know what, acting is, uh, is like finding God. You wake up one day and you say, well, I must do this. Uh, there's not really an option. And I tell people, if you, if, if you have an option, if you're considering either being an actor or an architect, by all means, go be an architect. Don't fool with acting because you say you're likely not to make any money and, <laughs> and you're likely to have a really rough time of it. But, you know, it's, it's like religion. You must do it. You must do it because you must do it. And that's the way it was for me. I can't imagine ever having another kind of life. I'm 72 years old now, and I've spent 50 years in uh, the entertainment industry as an, as an actor or in t as teaching acting. And I consider myself extremely fortunate to do what I've done and what I do. That's amazing. And I'm really curious because the acting life, you know, just the artistic life is very difficult, but you've been able to do it for 50 years. So before you started teaching when you were acting and you know, being on stage and screen, besides just talent and drive, like what do you feel like enabled you to be able to do this for so long when other people fall by the wayside? Well, I have an inclination to approach things, you know, in a business sort of a way. I've always been organized that like that. Also, where I fit in the acting spectrum 
was uh, I worked as a, uh, a character actor in supporting roles. I was always the second banana. I was the district attorney. I was the employment counselor. I was the, sometimes the taxi driver. I was, oh man, just all of these different kinds of roles on these television shows. I, many, many of the shows, Golden Girls and Full House and Empty Nest and Hunter and Heart to Heart and The Fall Guy. Did I say that? I can't, The Knight Rider. It goes on and on. Just you name a show in the 1980s and I was on it but always in these the supporting roles. And, you know, television puts a very high premium on a fast study, one take kind of an actor. And I learned the most about acting, not from American Academy of Dramatic Arts, although that was a good school and other teachers that I studied with, Uta Hagen and people. But really, I learned the most about acting by doing bad plays off-Broadway. <laughs> Yeah. And the reason is because they, in school, you're working with Shakespeare, Tennessee Williams, uh, Beckett, Pinter. You're working with these classic plays. And the idea is that if you find the key, it works. You, you, know, you know that. You know that the plays work. When you're working on original material, there's a, a halfway decent chance that it doesn't work, that the play is flawed. And you learn how to make things work, even if they aren't well-written. You learn the way to put conflict into something, even if conflict isn't there, and, and to make it interesting. And I learned this lesson very solidly working off-Broadway. And when I got to Hollywood, most television shows are poorly written. You know, they write for the stars. They don't write for the supporting roles. So I was one of those people who you could give me a page out of the telephone book and I could probably make it somewhat interesting to watch And because I understood how to do it. And the directors never had to worry about me. If they had a role they needed done, they could hire me. And so even a lot of my work I got without even auditioning. After a while, I became known for this. And that's how it was. You know, in Screen Actors Guild, there's no middle income group. You know, you've got Brad Pitt and people like that that are making $20 million for a movie. And then you've got maybe 80% of the members of Screen Actors Guild that are going to make under hmm, $6,000, $7,000 a year. You can't live on it. There's a tiny, tiny sliver of members of Screen Actors Guild that make what you would call a living wage. And I've been fortunate to fall into that group because I was able to just work steady without being a star, just being a working actor for many, many, many years. And, and that was it. That I did that and then teaching acting, you know, had acting classes and they were well attended and respected. And then I started, you know, in 1996, I started working with animators that's been my career path. But that's how I learned about acting, that really. Do plays that don't work and see what happens, because the audience doesn't care if the play doesn't work. It's you that's on the stage. <laughs> that is fantastic. And I feel like that probably goes against conventional wisdom, too, because I can imagine a lot of people thinking, oh, if only I was in something fantastic, then everyone could see me. But what it sounds like is, no, if you can elevate the material 
that will really make you stand out, even if it's something, you know, like you said, if it's just a phone book. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's that's your job as an actor. You know, Aristotle said in the Poetics, every human action has a purpose. All of acting theory is built on that premise, based on that, that every human action has a purpose. And so even if you're working with a script that's badly written, you know that what you're doing, what you're saying needs to have a purpose. And if the purpose isn't in the script, if you can't find it there, then you come up with something so that you have a purpose. That's the skill. That's an actor's skill. It could be a skill just for life as well. Just be intentional with what you're doing. Wow. Of course. In fact, that's, I mean, you're absolutely right. <laughs> a lot of times people are not aware even. They do things and they're not thinking about really what kind of a response they want. What is their purpose? What is their, we would be all of us in much better shape if we uh, actually identified what our real purpose is, you know, what our real objectives every day, all the time. I think so too. And speaking of objectives too, because you mentioned you know, you're a working actor, you're working on all of these shows, mm -hmm. and then you began to teach. How did you get into teaching? Well, I started teaching acting to actors. I think the first class to actors I taught was in New York, and just some friends wanted to work in a class, and I, I started teaching them, and I can't remember exactly how that ever started, really, to tell you the truth. But when I got to Los Angeles... I had an acting class, and in Los Angeles, I had certain, uh, you know, a certain respect because I was a New York trained actor. And so, when I announced that I had some acting classes, I there were people that showed up for that. And then I taught in San Francisco, so I had classes both in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. And they just become known. It's word of mouth. I really never advertised. And people talk, it's pro professional level classes, uh, you know, pros talk to pros and they, they come over and work in the class. And my classes have always been what you would call rather advanced acting classes. And I, I get people up and working in scenes and whatnot. This is, I'm talking about for actors now and not for uh, animators. And so you were already teaching, you already had a good reputation mm -hmm. Was yeah. it someone in your class or was it a studio? Like who came to you to say, hey, have you ever considered teaching acting for animators? Yeah, it was Ken Bielenberg. Ken Bielenberg was one of my students in my regular acting class in San Francisco. And, you know, when you're teaching, the, the actors have job jobs. They have day jobs. Sometimes they work as waiters. They do various things to put food on the table to pay the rent. You never know what they do. And Ken had been in my class for, I don't know, months, six months, eight months. He was in the class working. And I never knew what Ken did, you know, in the daytime. I just knew that he, what, he had told me that he wanted one day to direct live action and to direct movies. And I said, oh, well, cool. So you need to learn about acting. Well, one night after class, Ken, we were walking out to our cars and Ken said to me, would you be willing to do a class on site? He said, I work at an animation company and we're making a movie. We've never made a movie and we've only made commercials and we feel like we could use an acting class. And he said, I'll give him your name if you'd be willing to do it. 
And I said, sure, why not? I didn't know anything about animation, nothing, and except that I was still upset about Bambi's mother dying. <laughs> and so <laughs> I've heard that from a lot of people. They're just like, what have you done, Walt Disney? How could yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. So the company was PDI DreamWorks. DreamWorks had just bought the specific data images. And it turned out that Ken Bielenberg was like head of visual effects there. I didn't know this. I, he, he actually had a, a position. He was, they didn't just have a job. And so they brought me in there and I screwed it up. I went in there and tried to teach them like actors. At that time, I thought that there was only one way to learn about acting. That if you want to learn about acting, you had to get up and act. And here, here's a script, here's a role. Let me show you how to rehearse. And let's get you off script and get you up here acting. And then you'll see how acting works. That was what I thought. And so, I don't know, there's probably 30 animators or so in there. And by the, I would say the third class, half of them wouldn't come to class. Also, they weren't learning their lines. They weren't doing the work. And I just couldn't understand. I mean, they weren't coming to class. And then the human resources people took me to lunch. And I, <laughs> I figured, okay, this is it. And they said, well, it's not working. And I said, well, I said, I know. I'm just so embarrassed. I'm sorry. I don't have any idea what's going on. I've never lost students. I feel terrible. And they said, well, Ken tells us that you're a good acting teacher, and we believe him. And if you want to try something else or experiment, then we'll keep you on the payroll, but you're going to have to stop doing what you're doing. And I said, okay. And so we got the animators back together, and I said to them, I said, okay, look, guys. I said, I think I understand something about acting, but I clearly don't understand anything about animation. And you need to show me how you do what you do. And I need to be quiet. And if I can understand how you do what you do, maybe I can come up with a way to bring to bear what I understand about acting in a way that'll be useful to you. And so that's what they did. They gave me a chair with rollers on it. And I went from animator to animator and watched them animate and talk to them about how they were doing what they were doing. The movie they were working on, by the way, was called Ants. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, their it, first CG movie. Uh, you know, even that, if you had told me that, it wouldn't have mean any, meant anything to me because I didn't have any concept of CG, traditional. I, you know, I, didn't, I knew about acting. I didn't know about animation. And so... I, I followed the animators around and they would show me stuff and how they would do these two little two seconds and three seconds and they would do it over and over and over and over. And then I had an aha moment. And the aha moment was these guys don't have a present moment. They have an illusion of a present moment. Actors work in the present moment. I reach over, I touch your cheek, you react to that. I react to your reaction, you react to my reaction. Actors work a lot on this. And also being able to be reactive like that under great pressure and with many people watching and lights and cameras and everything, it's a high stress situation. Animators have 24 frames make a second. They don't have a present moment. 
they've got an illusion of a present moment. When I saw that, I said, oh my gosh, that's what the thing is. They don't need any sensory work. They don't need to be working on relaxation. They don't need to be work. These things might be fun for them, but they don't need them for their skill set. They need to understand how acting works so that they can then apply the principles to what they're doing. And I said, okay, so from my perspective, it was a matter of, okay, how do you teach acting theory to grown-ups? How do you teach acting theory to somebody who really needs to understand it, but who doesn't want to be an actor, who doesn't want to be on Broadway, doesn't want to be in a movie with Robert De Niro? How do you teach these people acting? And I came up with a way after a while of lecture discussion on essential acting principles. I boiled it down to essential principles and then started with deconstructing scenes and clips and explaining how the acting was working in there. And then we would discuss comedy and drama. We would discuss heroes and villains. We would discuss the connections between thinking, emotion, and physical action. We would discuss the nature of uh, comedy they asked me to analyze how Woody Allen's uh, comedy worked, for example, that kind of thing. So we had those kind of conversations. Well, after the movie came out, I knew that there was no literature on this because I had hunted for it. And so what I did was I wrote a book, which nobody wanted to publish. I took it to several publishers and what they said to me, they said, Ed, there's a lot of acting books out there that animators have access to. And I said, no, animators are different. They don't have a present moment. You got to listen to me. <laughs> it's, it's like, believe me, I've, I've sat with them. They understand I, this. I understand now too. <laughs> yeah. I said, no, I've been to the mountain. This is, listen, they don't, they don't have a present moment, these guys. <laughs> I said, they need, a, they need their own acting book. And the publisher said, if they needed their own acting book, there'd already be one. Oh, that's a terrible argument. <laughs> that's what they said, though. And I heard it repeatedly because there was no book. There wasn't any literature specifically for animators about acting. If an animator wanted to learn about acting, they went and took an acting class. And acting classes are designed for people who want to be on Broadway and be in movies, so animators are sort of on their own. Some animators are going to be fine in a regular acting class because some animators really like to get up and act. They just enjoy it. It's like out of any group of lawyers, of, of accountants, of doctors, a certain percentage of them are going to really like to get up and do things like that. But a lot of them don't, and it's not essential that they perform it's not a part, an essential part of the animator's skill set. They just need to understand how acting works. You know, Angela, you know that the, the expression, you've heard it, I'm sure, the, the animator is an actor with a pencil. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, see, that's true in a way, but it's not literally true. It's not strictly true. The actor in animation is the character on the screen. And the relationship between the animator and the character is one of empathetic direction. So from the audience's perspective, Mickey Mouse is the actor, not Walt Disney. So when you say the animator is the actor with a pencil, 
a lot of animators, especially beginning animators, can be very confused by this because they think they're supposed to also be actors. No, it's a different art form. Animation and acting are two different art forms that have some things in common, but it's not the same. So that particular expression, I think, has done just about as much harm as it's done good. It's confused animators about exactly what acting is. They need to understand it's the character is the actor. And anyway, so I enunciated all this. I put it in a book. And then because there had not been any other book, and because I had worked with the animators on Ants, I became sort of the go-to guy pretty much overnight. Nobody had ever done this before, and I had sort of stumbled into it. I mean, I was invited in by Ken Bielenberg. I, I wouldn't have been smart enough to pursue it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. But then I immediately started working with other companies, with other studios, and I became a student of my own self. I began to learn more, and I found that the work I was doing with animators was actually helping me with the work I was doing with actors. I saw, I learned so much working with animators, and I came to really love it, and it became the, you know, the tail that wags my creative dog, and so I stopped teaching actors all together, oh, I don't know how many years ago now. This would have been probably around the year 2002 or something like that. I stopped teaching actors, and I've exclusively taught animators uh, ever since. And that's how it came to be, and I'm still doing it. Acting for Animators, the, uh, the book will now, I just finished writing the revised fourth edition of it. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and it'll be published in uh, April, the revised fourth edition. It's published now by Rutledge. So the third edition is there. You know, acting principles don't change. What changes are the references, the movies that I talk about. I do change all of that, and I do evolve. I do reword some things. But acting principles really haven't changed since Aristotle. And uh, that's an important thing for people to understand because they sometimes I hear people say, well, as a matter of fact, I was listening to it in a chat room. I was lurking in a chat room, listening to people talking about acting. And I did, they didn't know I was even there, but I was listening. And one of them said at one point, well, Ed Hooks's method, they mentioned me, and they said, well, Ed Hooks's method is that you have to have an objective. The character has to have an objective. And I thought to myself, Ed Hooks's method. <laughs> How That's surreal not... was that for you to be sitting there going, wait a minute? <laughs> it was very surreal. Honestly, it was surreal. But I still didn't let them know I was there. But I, because I, I wanted to hear what they had to say. But the, what was funny was that this is not Ed Hooks's method, this is Aristotle's method. It's, uh, <laughs> I didn't make this up, I don't make up anything that I teach. I'm just a messenger who studied it and is able to communicate these principles in a simple way to people. Wow, that is an amazing story. And I mean, I have to tell you, that's not the answer I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, oh, you know, I really enjoyed animated movies. And then one day I decided to teach animators. It's like, no, you were going about doing just fine teaching actors. And it just so happened an animator was taking your class. That's great. And also, 
I'm really glad, too, not only that you had that lunch, but that you decided, you know what, I'm going to change this up then, because I don't think everybody would have done that. I think some people would have just, you know, there are people that would have just said, yeah. well, if they're not getting it my way, then bah, who cares? I'm going to go off and do what I've been doing. You're right. And there's there's still today, you know, I see classes that are, uh, you know, people will advertise classes that they, and in schools, I see they have acting for animators. And what they'll do is they'll bring in an acting teacher and, they, and the acting teacher is doing, making the same mistakes I did back then, the, the same mistakes. I mean, in order to get to where I got to, you have to know a lot about acting plus you have to understand the distinction between animators and actors. you got to understand as two different art forms. And unless you really have studied it and addressed it, it's not natural. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't just fall on you. But I would, you know, it's, you're right. I could have walked away when they said it's not working. I certainly was embarrassed. I'll tell you that. I had just never lost students, you know. <laughs> and uh, here, here it was. They weren't coming to class. They weren't doing the work. And I was lost. I was confused. And But when they said, you can experiment, I knew from being over there at PDI, when I first time I walked in there and saw all those animators with the headsets on in the darkened room, and they were all sitting there doing the animation with it over and over and over and over, you know, it was one of those, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. It was uh, one of those kind of moments for me. I, it was exciting to me, even though I didn't understand it. I knew that it was exciting. And so I was very motivated to uh, to learn. And man, I've been fortunate. I've, I mean, really. Well, I tell you what, when I uh, when I wrote Acting for Animators, I was looking at all these movies and just still learning about acting, how we were looking to see how it was applied, you know, in, in animation, in things that in the past. And uh, I saw one of the movies I watched was The Iron Giant. And I looked at this and I said, well, well, this is wonderful. The acting in this is really, really good. And I'm reading the paper and this movie is a flop. It came out and it went to DVD about overnight. And I said to myself, this is good. This is a really good movie. This is really good acting. And so I decided that anybody who would read this book I was writing should see that movie and let me explain to them why it's good. I took some of the scenes in it and I analyzed them and I explained what the characters were doing and why it was clever what the director had done there. And so after I finished putting all this together, it was several pages of notes. And I sent them to Brad Bird in care of Warner Brothers. I didn't know Brad at all, but I knew that the movie had been released by Warner Brothers. And so I, I addressed it to Brad Bird, care of Warner Brothers. And next thing I know, Brad gets in touch with me and he says, you nailed it. He said, you're right. You got it. And I said, well, I'm glad. I said, you've got a really what looks to me to be a perfect movie here. And I said, so I don't understand why the movie didn't work, but it's a good movie. And I'm going to put it in my book and I'm going to do everything I can to see that anybody who reads my book studies your movie. I think they should. 
And so he went over my notes uh, to see if I had made any spelling or character things, or if I was describing something incorrectly. But he endorsed everything I said in terms of acting. So I put it in the book. And as luck would have it, I forget exactly how it evolved, but then they wanted, the publisher wanted a, a, somebody, a forward of some kind. And so I had this dialogue with Brad going on because of my notes. And I said, would you write a little forward to this book? He said, okay. And so he did. So I had, a, and that was before Brad Bird was really the Brad Bird that we know now. That's how I came to know him. Wow. And that so, is, that is yeah. amazing. Well, I mean, I've had this kind of luck. It's just good luck. I'm about the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> but see, but I don't know if it's just luck. I mean, I agree with you. That is definitely luck. But also, I feel like it's more than luck, though. I feel like, you know, you put yourself in a position to reach out to people. You know, you studied your craft and you're willing to teach other people. You saw something you really enjoyed. It didn't do well. And you thought well, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to do something about it. You're a very self-motivated person. So yeah. I believe that that has a lot to do with it too. Because if you weren't self-motivated or if you were very much like, no, I'm just going to keep all this information to myself and no one else will have it. You know, yeah. you wouldn't have had all of this success. Yeah. I'm curious. I have a lot of curiosity. I'd say, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was asked one time, what is the secret of his genius, his work? And his answer was very telling, I think. His answer was knowing how to see. He didn't say knowing how to paint. He didn't say knowing how to sculpt. He said knowing how to see. And I think that that's the most important thing. And I try my best for my own self in a personal way to see. And when something catches my attention, I trust my gut about it. I say, okay, even if I don't understand sometimes, I look at something and I can tell if it's good, if it's good to me, and then I want to know why. Why is it good? Why is it good? Or if something really bothers me, why does it bother me? I'm curious about it. I need to know how. I want to, I want to know why. And so it's a matter of continually honing this impulse to see things. I believe that opportunities come past us every single day. I mean, look at you. You're here with this wonderful podcast. I mean, things come across your radar screen. Things come across everybody's radar screen every single day. And most people just don't see it. They're not looking. They're not, uh, it goes by. They don't know. They just don't know anything was there. And I think that Life is like that. I think opportunities are there if you will simply grab them when they come by. Well, that could, I mean, you could teach a course just on that. Just write a book just about that. Just how to see opportunities, how to just not miss what's, you know, what might be right in front of you. Well, I believe it's true. I don't mean to be self-aggrandizing. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm just saying, I think it's true of all of us. I think it's true of of everybody. We tend to be self-involved. We tend to focus too much inward. And a lot of times we just don't see what comes past us. You know, I'm about with uh, my wife and I are just about to move to uh, to Lisbon, Portugal. 
We're moving uh, quite soon from Los Angeles. Now, I've never lived abroad. I've, I've, I travel. I've, I teach abroad. But I've never lived abroad. And it's a lot of trouble to get yourself a residency visa in, uh, in, in Portugal if you've never been there. I mean, let me tell you. But it's okay. It's a challenge. It takes me out of my safety zone. I feel like I'm learning things. It's an adventure. And what is the downside? You know, you go and if, if things, if something doesn't work out, you pick yourself up, you do something else. But I think it's a great adventure. And I, I believe that. I think everybody should challenge themselves and, and to be open to whatever comes past them on that radar screen. What made you and your wife decide to move? Well, we like Europe. I've always been very comfortable with Europe. I hadn't been out of the United States until I was 45 years old. And I went to Italy alone. My wife gave me a trip all by myself. <laughs> and yeah, I know. And I went to, uh, I did the three big cities in Italy. And I remember getting off the plane in Rome. And man, I just felt good. You know, remember a minute ago, I said that when I was a kid, we moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. And all around the South. And I, I frequently was in schools not long enough to even get a record set up. And it was a transient, a, a transient life. And I always felt like there was something missing in me, uh, some kind of deep root that was just not there. Like, And I, I had the feeling that it maybe wasn't in the United States because the United States is such a baby country just such an infant country, but I had never been anywhere else. And I got off the plane in Rome, and man, I felt good. I felt solid. They had artwork and sculptures and things on random street corners that were 500 years old. And I was enraptured with this, just like you can't, I can't even begin to tell you. I went to Florence and saw Masaccio's frescoes in the Brancacci Chapel changed my life. I've never felt like that anyplace else. And the European people have always been, regardless of the country over there, I've always felt very visible. I've always felt very appreciated, very welcomed. Not that I don't feel welcome in the United States, but there's a certain kind of a, a certain kind of visibility that I get when I go over there. And I, I long for it and I want it. And as it happens... The industry itself is changing right now. The animation industry is becoming less Hollywood-centric. A lot of this has to do with there's different platforms. There, People are watching movies on iPads. They're watching movies on computers. The nature of how people watch movies is changing. And in the United States, really, you've got Disney and Disney owns everything except for what Universal owns. I mean, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> pretty, pretty split down the middle. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, I mean, there, there isn't even a DreamWorks anymore. You know, pretty much that's it. And really, Disney, you know, Pixar is part of it now. They're really doing... I hope nobody takes this wrong, but these movies, they're on an assembly line. They turn them out regularly... And they really are sort of feature-length commercials, is really. This is my big observation about most of the, of the big 
$200 million movies that I see. This is the problem with them is that they're really selling products. They're really selling merchandise and theme parks and, and whatnot. And the movies are feeders for a larger machine. And the movies have to come off of that assembly line. And they just keep doing them. So what's happening as the thing is opening up internationally, you're getting the opportunities now for people to make lower budget movies that are targeted to more specific demographic audiences. We're starting now to see more movies, animated movies for adults, adult themed. I'm not talking about sex things. I'm mm -hmm. not talking about adult, adult subjects. I mean, we live, this is a difficult world we're living in. We, we need animation to me is the most underused and underappreciated art form of the 21st century. It's just simply a baby, what's being done with it. It's been, it's been commercialized is what's happened. Uh, Hollywood has figured out how to turn it into money. And as an art form, it really hasn't been developed as far as it should be. And now you get movies, you know, did you see, uh, I'm sure you did, Boy in the World? I haven't had a chance to see that, but I've seen clips of it. And it oh. looked really, really good. Oh, my God, you must see this movie. This is one of the best movies that I've seen in the past couple of three years. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. It's extraordinary. And this movie came out of Brazil and cost $500,000 to make. 15 animators. It has no comprehensible dialogue. The director, Ali Abru, what he did was he typed out the dialogue in Portuguese backwards what? and they record yes and they recorded wow. they recorded the dialogue Portuguese backwards so it comes it sounds like gibberish to the degree that the characters speak the movie has a lot of music in it and you don't have to speak a particular language in order to get it so the movie can travel internationally it has a wonderful story to it and the style of it, it looks almost, it's very colorful. It makes, it's almost like it was made with a box of crayons and rulers. And the lead character, the main character is just, his head is a circle and he's got like three strands of hair sticking up on the top of his head and a couple of slashes for eyes. We're talking extremely crude kindergarten level drawing, what it looks like. But much of the movie, I mean, you can see the skill. It doesn't look like children did the movie, but it's that's the feel of it, is this kind of very basic colors and drawing. And with using blinks, the way the boy blinks. See, I know this because I teach about this. And it, with our blinking, that I'll, just a quick acting lesson here. With blinking, only three blinks per minute are necessary for the physical maintenance of your eyeball and for keeping it moist and to keep the dust out and whatnot. All of the rest of our blinking is actually calibrated to our thought process. And when you understand something that I say, you blink, even if you don't speak right away. When I understand something, I blink. Grasp, blink, speak is the way it works. And so with Boy in the World, because this character has nothing but a couple of slashes for eyes. There's nothing there. There's no defined eyeball, no nothing. But so what he does is with the blinking, 
you're able to tell when this child, a seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, who's run, run away from home to find his father, he sees the world that we adults have created. He's never been off of the farm. And so he sees soldiers, he sees factories, he sees migrant workers, he sees things that he's never seen. And sometimes he blinks and sometimes he doesn't. And when you see him blink, you can figure he, uh, he has a thought about what that is. You can see him register about what he's just seen. Now, what I'm telling you right now is, is very sophisticated. This is acting stuff. Okay, a regular audience certainly is not going to be watching the blinks. They're not going to be aware of it. But I'm telling you, that is a masterful uh, use of blinking for a movie that's got no dialogue that you can understand. It's all, you know, it's just music and all. But you're able to get a full sample of this kid's thought processes because of the blinks. Marvelous. Just the movie is, you must see it, Angela. You really must. You must get this and look at it. It is on my list. I actually have a group of friends that we get together and watch various movies, especially ones that, you know, a lot of people haven't seen. And it is on there. That and um, I believe the other one is uh, My Life as a Zucchini and The Red Turtle, because those are all up for awards this year. So they just, I just love films that are not what you would typically see. Exactly. Because I feel like you can, not only can you learn a lot, but it's, it's different, especially films that are not made in the United States, because you're right. I mean, there are a lot of great quality films made in the U.S., but because their budgets are so large, they have to appeal to a really large swath of the audience just to make their money back. Because otherwise, I mean, you know, so many people are writing on this movie doing well. And if you spent 150 to 200 million dollars just on the movie and then 200 million dollars on the marketing, you have a 400 million dollar movie. So if it doesn't clear at least 400 million, then you're in really bad shape. But, you know, that limits, I feel like some of the messages and some of the things you could do, because if you want to get something really nuanced, it's like, well... Will that work with a $400 million movie? Maybe. Yeah. And that's the reason why the movies all have, and they have such boilerplate, you know, they, they take whatever worked before and they take that and put it in here. It's a kind of a construction. Also, I have some problems with the way that these big budget animated films are developed because they, you take a movie like, uh, I wrote about this one's one of the ones I analyzed in the new book but is uh, frozen. They started out to have the antagonist was supposed to be uh, Elsa, the queen, the snow queen. And, and then somewhere along the way, they decided, no, I mean, maybe it was a marketing decision. I don't know what the, but they, they changed horses in the middle of the stream and decided to make Hans of the Southern Isle, the antagonist. And so there's no foreshadowing for Hans of the Southern Isle. 15 minutes before the final credits roll, and I'm talking exactly 15 minutes, I timed it. 15 minutes before the final credits roll, this character announces that he is a sociopathic murderer and has, since the beginning, planned on killing Elsa and taking over the kingdom. So, if you've got the DVD... Go back and look at every single scene that that character was in in the movie. 
that means that all of these ice storms, everything has interrupted his plan. But there's nothing in there. That character is a ragdoll, a mental ragdoll, all through that movie, all the way up until he announces that he's a murderer. And Disney is about to win an Academy Award for Zootopia, and they did the same thing in Zootopia with the rabbit character that's the killer. Fifteen minutes before final credits, we find out she's a murderer. It's, there's no foreshadowing. This is in a screenplay class at USC. Screenplays like this would get a gentleman's C. They wouldn't be winning Academy Awards. And when I tell my friends, animators at the big studios, I point them out. I mean, I've had this conversation. I've taught over there. And I point this out to them. And you know what they say to me? They say, but Ed, it's animation. Oh, it's, it's like that's the cop-out answer. It's what they say. I've heard, I've had that said to me so many times. And I say to them, well, there's still, that doesn't matter. There, a story is story. And these same creative people, they win the awards. They get up on this, up to take their awards. And they say, it's all about story. It's all about story. And they're right. However, they don't seem to know that their story that they just are picking up the award for is flawed. And this type of stuff is, it drives me crazy as an acting teacher, because you really can't separate acting from story at the end of the day. And in live action movies, they wouldn't dream of starting a live action movie without a script that, you know, that a complete script, you may revise it, you may revise it 20 times, but there's going to be a script with animation, especially the big budget ones. They'll start movies without a script. It's an amazing thing to me. They'll figure that they'll work it out along the way somewhere, the storyboarding. And they tell me, they say, oh, no, well, we often don't know how it's going to end yet. We just, uh, we launch on the journey and then all of us are surprised together. And I think, oh, my God, you know, this is not. Uh... <laughs> it's like, get me out of the car. I want to know where I'm going before I get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, this is one of the reasons why the lower budget movies and these movies at Coraline, I thought was a really quite a good movie. I mm -hmm. liked it a lot. The lower budget movies, the independent movies, they have a script. They're making them much more in the style of live action. They'll have a script and then they'll work on the script and they may change it along the way, but there's a script with a beginning, a middle and an end. And then they go make the movie. And to me, this is going to be one of the benefits. We're getting now a lot of cross-fertilization where we're getting live-action directors coming in directing animation and animation directors directing live-action. And I think this is probably very healthy for the industry, for both industries, in fact. But I do think it's a healthy thing. And that at some point, it's bound to affect the way that the scripts are developed. Also, you know, with the big, huge budgets, they say... We're making movies in the Disney tradition for the entire family. This is what you say. You've heard this. Well, Disney didn't make movies for the entire family. Disney made movies for kids. And then he charmed the adults into seeing them also on the grounds that there is a child in all of us. When you watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you revert. You watch it as a child. 
it's quite a different process here. It's not like the movie Up, you know. The first half of Up is made for adults, and then the second half is made for children. It's a, a Disney would never have done that. What they're doing is they're making movies that have adult jokes and adult characters, and then they're putting a lot of their humorous visual character types and designs and whatnot, and then they'll put some pratfalls and some of those kind of jokes and stuff in there for the kids. But it just is a matter of putting everything on the table all at one time just to get it in there. But these movies don't come across, most of the time, they don't come across as terribly pure. You know, there's a philosophical point. Avoidance of failure is not the same thing as the pursuit of success. And you take a company like Pixar. When they started out, they had one movie. They had one script. They had this thing about the toys. And uh, Disney didn't want to do it. They, they really, they had a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg was running Disney's animation at that time. He didn't want to do it. He kept telling him to change it. But they babied that thing, and Pixar was 300 miles away from Hollywood. And they wanted to make a movie with computers, and nobody had ever done that. What they were doing was they were pursuing a positive. They had something that they wanted to do. They were pursuing success, and they succeeded. They changed the industry with their movie. But now they got to have two movies every year complete movies, because Wall Street is waiting for them to have them, and Disney is demanding them, and they go into the Disney machine. And what they've got is they've got $200 million sitting in the middle of the table. And with that, nobody wants to screw it up. So it mm -hmm. becomes a matter of avoiding failure. You say, okay, a movie has been announced. It's got to be ready. It's got to be released. And if we don't get it right, then we'll, our heads will roll. But they don't start with a story. They start with a release date and a pile of money and a, a kind of a hunch, a, a general idea. Then they work it out along the way. To me, it's a very flawed way of developing, of developing art, if you will. And I think that this trend that I see with the international development of animation is going to make animation much better, much healthier. Hollywood's going to keep doing what Hollywood's doing. We in the United States are very good at selling things to each other. And that's what the studios in Hollywood do. They're selling stuff. I'm curious about that because that makes a lot of sense. And I hear that in television too, especially when they're developing television shows that nobody wants to greenlight the show that ends up tanking. And that ends up not doing well and losing money for the network. And same with the major studios. So what do you think a good solution would be then for the U.S.? Do you think that as independent films, especially films from other countries, gain more attraction, do you think that U.S. companies or U.S. creators will take notice? Or do you think that it will have to essentially implode before people start paying attention? It probably has to implode. The thing is that companies, you know, it's a broader discussion, but companies exist to serve their stockholders and they have to keep making money. And that's really the thing. For example, when I talk to people and give them my observation about Frozen, about the antagonist not having foreshadowing and whatnot, they often will point out to me that the movie has made almost $2 billion. But that doesn't prove them... <laughs> 
That's that's an interesting thing though. It's like, yes, it made a lot of money. And I'll admit, I absolutely love Frozen, but you make mm-hmm. a very good point because it does come literally out of nowhere that yeah. everything's going along and then you find out he's evil and that's exciting. But then when you look back, you realize, yeah, there really is no lead up to that. Sure. It's basically things are going along. We have a lot of awesome songs, lots of snow. Mm-hmm. Boom. Mm-hmm. This guy turns out to be the bad guy. Now he's defeated. Yeah. Hooray. It's like, oh, okay. That's right. Exactly right. Is There's no foreshadowing. They just put it in there. He just pops out of left field and says, I'm a killer. <laughs> and it's because they didn't start with a completed script. They developed it along the way. They had a different idea about the villain and changed their mind after they started production. And, and here you're talking about $200 million movie. To me, this is nuts. But... They say to me, well, Ed, it made $2 billion. It made, you know, billion with a B. So who's right? And I say, okay, all right, okay. (laughs) If that's the value, if that's the higher value, then you're very, very good at at doing this. You're very good at creating value in terms of, they can be measured in terms of money. See, I teach, Angela, I teach that, that animators are shamans, that it all comes down, I mean, that is that is the animator's genealogy. It goes back 6,000 years to when there was nomadic tribes and they had shamans and they would the tribes would follow the herds in Mesopotamia. The herd would get sick or the tribe, would, something would happen. They would call out their shamans. A shaman would put a circle in the dirt. The tribe would gather around And then they would chant to the animal gods or the weather gods or whichever gods. The idea was to keep the tribe together. It was to help the tribe survive. If we humans have a mandate in life, it is to survive and to get the next generation into being and to help them survive, make them live. We have to survive. That's what it is. And the shamans are the ones who helped the tribe do this. They're the artists. And that's the same what animators are today. If you follow this all through history, it comes all around. It still is a shamanistic activity. We are storytelling animals. And shamans are storytellers. And we're talking to the tribe. And it should be about survival. What's happened with these very big budget movies is that The point that they make about life or survival often is banal. There's no point at all. It's just sort of entertainment. It's a a date night. And what I see, I see the world in a terrible place. We're in a lot of trouble. We need shamans. We need artists. We need people to speak to the tribe. And what Hollywood is doing is selling stuff to the tribe. And I think that this is tragic. And I applaud the independent filmmakers. I applaud people that are expressing it, uh, using the art of it. I don't have anything against making money. I don't, I think it's fine. It's great, you know, by all means, buy stock in these companies. You know, everybody should make money. There's no, there's no virtue in being poor. However, something is being lost 
we're selling stuff. We got data coming at us, information coming at us. And what we're missing is contextual. Leo Tolstoy wrote a wonderful essay called What is Art? And you can find it online, What is Art? He says that one of the defining characteristics of art is that the artist is expressing his or her idea about something and how the artist feels about that idea. They're communicating a feeling and about an idea. It comes out of one person's mind, one person's values. That's what art is. It's just start there. Art is not something done by committee. It comes out of one person's mind and one person's values. It's a shamanistic activity. And where I see that the most is in movies like Boy in the World. And in uh, The Iron Giant, I thought was like that. I mean, I can make a, a list of movies that I think fit this formula. We need shamans right now. We need people to say, this is what I think that will help the tribe survive. We got enough people already that are just selling stuff to the tribe. And that concludes part one of my interview with Ed Hooks. Special thanks to Ed for being such a wonderful guest. And you can check out his website, www.edhooks.com, as well as his Facebook page, facebook.com slash ed.hooks. I'll have both of those sites listed in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to leave a five-star review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And thank you to everyone who has left a review. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and leaving a donation via PayPal. All of your donations help me to keep the show up and running and pay for technical costs. And again, thank you so much to everyone who has donated. And you can also support our sponsors, Loot Crate, Amazon, Audible, and Blueberry Podcast Hosting. Every time you click the sponsor links and make a purchase, a little bit of money comes back to the show. So make sure to support all of our sponsors out there. And especially Amazon. Make sure to go to Amazon and to pick up all of Ed's books, including his brand new one, Craft Notes for Animators. And if you want to see what's been going on in the wide world of animation, you can visit the podcast page on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. Just look for The Animated Journey or use the handle at AnimJourney when you're on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to see what I've been up to, you can visit my website, www.sketchysoul.com. I'm also on Facebook and Tumblr under those handles. And on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow me at Sketchy Soul. So it has been an absolute delight having the opportunity to bring this interview to all of you today. And until next time, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody. Bye.